This is Game Theory, a podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making. Hosted by me, Nick Andrews, and my brother, Chris. In this episode, all of science has been discovered. In the 20th century, that's 1901 to 2000 for those of us who forget, the scientific community mapped out the three tiny building blocks of our world, the bit, the atom, and the gene. And while there are always ways to get smaller, they largely mean we've gotten to the bottom of our questions. The bit exploded the computer revolution. In fact, it's how you're listening to this right now. The atom is what our world is made of. Manipulating it can create extreme energy, like the atom bomb. And the gene tells us what we are and what we could be. And it shows us how to treat cancer, along with many other diseases. Ever since we discovered these things, something strange has happened. Discoveries and advancements have slowed way down. Think about it. When was the last time a smartphone came out with a cool update other than a new camera or more storage? Some have called this science's boring paper problem. That there's nothing worth writing home about happening in laboratories across the world. Well, not only is that not exactly true, it's also not a bad thing. Sometimes we have to embrace the slog. And welcome to episode 57 of Game Theory, a podcast about competition strategy and decision making. Chris, um, I just got updated to gold status with American Airlines. And I got to be honest with you, the affirmation that that provided for me, I I feel good. I feel confident. Yeah, what are you going to go access the lounge in the Greensboro airport? I am absolutely nowhere near lounge access. I just get to board about seven minutes earlier than everybody else. That's good. You spend more time on the plane. Yeah, exactly. But which is people wanting to board early is the stupidest thing. It makes our we have been conditioned by grade school teachers across this country to think that being at the front of the line matters on airplanes. It doesn't. It helps a lot. Uh, I, I mean, just just think about this. Back Next storage, time you're getting off storage. an airplane, why you shouldn't dawdle. If it takes one second for 200 people to get their stuff, one additional second means like 200 additional seconds for the people in the back. So if everybody right. takes five additional seconds, I mean, it's it's just crazy, guys. Just be efficient. Just be nice. Don't worry about getting off the plane or on the plane in a big hurry. Like, it'll be fine. Everything will be okay. But I'm proud of you for reaching gold status. It's pretty yeah. impressive. Like, what what do you have to do for that? You got to, like, spend to upgrade your seats. Spend an ass ton of money. Yeah. I've traveled a lot for work. That's I also right. traveled a lot this year on, like like, little whimsical flights. Like, I went to Philly a couple times for like a birthday because it was like 200 bucks. I'm like, yeah, let's go. Um, and the Philly to Greensboro, weirdly, like they vibe. There's like nine flights a day. It doesn't make any sense, but there are, there they are. Um, instead of going to Charlotte, but there are a bunch of flights to Charlotte too. I also traveled for work and then I went to Phoenix and then we just went to California. So I just like a lot more money than I've ever spent with the airline. This is my first time um, being with the, the the ruling class. I, like I said, I feel I feel great. I was thinking about using my points to uh, come visit you in a couple of weeks and go to a chess tournament. We'll see how that goes. Yeah, Maybe. we will see how that goes. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm I'm trying to get trying to do a low buy low, low buy month because <laughs> look, my New Year's resolutions are shot. Yep. They're absolutely shot by this point. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to redeem myself in February. It's the shortest month to set a goal, so it's like the most likely to actually succeed in that goal. Sure. And I'm going to try to do it, but uh, but we'll see. We'll see if my chess temptations can 
overcome my financial responsibility or if I have in fact developed any discipline at all, which I seriously doubt. I doubt it as well. So, um, okay. Instant replay last episode, we were talking about Dunning Kruger, which is about people being smart, uh, or thinking there's no more and more of an expert than they actually are. This has nothing to do with that, but we are aware of the thousands of nurses who don't have any degrees, but they do have a piece of paper from some company in Florida. Have you been paying attention to this? Yeah, I, I I saw a headline. Could you could you fill us in as the medical medical? It's what it sounds here? like. A bunch of nurses uh, paid some money, and then a company printed out some shit and made it seem legit. And they're all over the country. They're just being unceremoniously fired. Obviously, however, mm. there's an enormous shortage. So we get to have this debate of like, fuck, are we super duper fucked, or just like super fucked, or like who's getting sued? What's what's about to happen? Are there more nurses now? What are we going to do? So yeah, now the, the medical system in this country is ripe for the uh, ability to commit fraud, and this is just one of those. Well, good. Well, that, that reminds me of this time when I was at work and uh, we were considering hiring somebody and he had a very impressive sounding resume with mm-hmm. names like Berkeley on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, come to find out with a quick Google search, one of the other interns at the company realized that it was not the University of California at Berkeley, UCB. It was Berkeley. It was like Berkeley University. Or something. It, it, the point is, it was a diploma mill. It was like worse than the online, like like the DeVries and like the Jones mm-hmm. International University. Like it was not even close to one of those it was like you can go to this place and like pay them 50 bucks or whatever i don't don't know how much it is but it's basically just like a place that'll give you a certificate that says berkeley on it and uh that guy didn't get hired so yeah uh gotta fake it better than that bro so uh, i have another i have another replay it's not instant replay this is a i guess a film room i don't know try it try again round two whatever whatever game metaphor we want to use. Eventually, uh, eventually we're going to get so deep into it because we've been doing this for like what? Two years. Half almost, calendar yeah, years almost two years. Like yeah. That. Wait, almost, I don't know. Three, two. Well, five, we started two. dabbling. I, I, I don't know who cares. The point is <laughs> we're going to get so deep at some point, we're going to have to like open up the retro pack. Like mm-hmm. how Nintendo has, like you can play old N64 games on the latest console and, all that kind of stuff. We're gonna have to go deep into the archive, but we don't really have an archive yet. Fifty six ep- fifty six and a half episodes. Uh, yeah. After two years, I, after two years, I'm willing to have that conversation for sure. Um, because it'll be a long time, and most of our audience listening now was obviously not with us then, so they haven't heard well, that shit unless they went back. Well, the NHL's doing their thing with like the reverse retro uniforms, and mm-hmm. they have a team NBA that's team. like that's two years old. So <laughs> they they don't have a reverse retro. There's no retro there to reverse. So no. we're basically channeling the Seattle Kraken here when, when we reach back into into the old archives. Yeah, so uh, vis-a-vis old archives, rankings are stupid. Remember that episode? Well, yeah. the U.S. Yeah. World News and Report continues to lose law schools and med schools that don't want to participate anymore. And like, why would Harvard mm-hmm. want to be ranked? I do think that there's sort of like the Magnus Carlson cheating thing. I think a yeah, small part of this is that they don't want to not be number one, two, three, four, five. But... Also, they're like, we're Harvard. Who gives a shit? Everybody who's good wants to come here on brand alone. Why do we need to be ranked? They know who we are. You ever seen it? I I saw a tweet years ago that was like, yeah, I I like to bother this guy by, uh, I I met this dude once, a really pompous, really irritating guy up in your face about how great he is and how smart he is. And so to get him back, I pretended not to know what Harvard was. Oh, you went to Harvard? Is what is that like a local, like a JUCO or something? Like, yeah, Yeah. stay around the area. It's a Boston school. uh, Apparently the guy got super mad. I imagine uh, that would work. Um, oh, I yeah. imagine it would go down like, uh-huh, good one. Like, no, for real. Like, I'll Google it. And then you Google it. Like, oh, that was a pretty good school. 
That'd be fucking yeah. funny. Well, okay, so we're not smart enough to be in the circles of any Harvard people to ever test that out. So if any of you people are, let us know how it goes. Yeah, let, let us know about the the Harvardness of going to Harvard. I imagine there's some apologeticness going in there, but also a lot of pride because, like, yeah, you know, I did, you didn't. Oh yeah, so did I? Oops, sorry, I didn't mean to tell you I went to Harvard. <laughs> so Chris, let's discuss things that happen at Harvard, like I don't know, research and inventing computers and things like that. So this episode, we and you've been pitching this episode to us, and it's been on the docket for a long time. This episode is about the idea of like if you feels like innovation and disruption in science is at a crawling pace and yeah. that's because it kind of is so i said in the intro uh that the bit the gene and the atom were all discovered in the last hundred years or so and they've been kind of innovated around and since then like everything is you can go smaller than those things but everything is essentially on those building blocks and now we're just kind of filling in the gaps but it feels like there's not some sort of plato or aristotle out there just discovering shit and it feels like things are slow. And so we're going to discuss if that's actually happening and how disruption is maybe bullshit and disruption theory. And then is science slowed down and what, what's the purpose of science? Okay, right? Yeah, so we're, we're not historians of science here by no. any stretch. I mean, that's, that's its entirely own robust discipline. And we don't, mm-hmm. we don't purport to, to be experts in that. But one thing that, uh, that caught my attention, a few years ago, I stumbled on this, this report from Harvard Business Review. Mm-hmm. So you know it's going to be pretty good. That's a missegment, goddammit. <laughs> I, I know. I, I tried to get there, but just I, I'm doing my best. Uh, but the uh, the title of this piece uh, by uh, Clayton Christensen, Michael Rayner, and Rory McDonald is a question, what is disruptive innovation? So like I said, they wrote this in late 2015. And this theory that they, that they trace back to 1995 is that thinking in a way that breaks away from the norm or like establishes new information or new ways of doing things or new approaches to businesses generates some kind of business growth. And you hear this term a lot, especially in conjunction with like technology companies. So like the, uh, like the Tessas of the world and the Facebooks of the world and the Googles of the world, they're very interested in trying to understand and harness the power of disruptive thinking because the thinking behind that is they want to create growth. And the best way to do that is to is to find new and uh, interesting ways to approach the same problems or, or new and interesting solutions to problems that we've written off as, as unsolvable or whatever the case is. It seems reasonable. Yeah. If you have a difficult problem, you change the way you think, you change the tools you use, you develop new tools to address problems. You know, modern problems require modern solutions, that old Dave Chappelle thing. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting to me is that as you said, in the last few years, uh, maybe even a little bit longer in the last few years, I'd say probably the last couple of decades, there seems to be con- growing consensus in the scientific and research communities that disruption is slowing down. And the, the degree of disruption that each new scientific paper or scientific discovery or research effort produces is incrementally smaller than the disruptions that came before it. And there are some interesting implications of this, and I, I, I just wanted to talk about it. So we, yeah. we, we, we just found some, some interesting sources that, that trace, you know, use data to explain, yeah, actually disruption is slowing down. Uh, so one of the one of the interesting bits that we were able to find is is this piece in the Atlantic by this guy Derek Thompson, and he describes what's called the consolidation disruption index. Uh, Nick, I don't know if you know this. I'm actually a published scientist. Did I ever tell you that? Uh, no, but I worked on the publication side of that, and I believe that the standards are in the basement. Yeah. 
Yeah, they couldn't be any lower. I'm, I'm technically a publisher. Like I do actually, if you go into like the uh, uh, TNF online uh-huh. or, you know, whatever the uh, uh, JSTOR or uh, some shit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If, if you go into one of those websites and, and you look hard enough, you can find, I did a very obscure paper on uh, Raman spectroscopy on uh, urineal compound linkages. And I wanted to see if there was any correlation between the Raman spectrum and the average length of atomic bonds and... There I'm boring a- myself just talking about this. There is no correlation for those of you who are curious. We'll come back but, to that, actually. I have an idea. We'll come back to that. Well, the point is that <laughs> the fact that I'm a published scientist yeah. is a nice little fridge paper for me, but it really means nothing in the grand scheme of like the corpus of scientific knowledge. What is a way to measure that connection and, and the importance of individual contributions to the scientific corpus is this this consolidation disruption index or the CD index. Uh, it's really a, a measure of the influence of new research. And... The, it, what it does is measures like the number of times that a scientific report is referenced by subsequent scientific reports. So Big Brainiac does really groundbreaking research, makes a brand new discovery, publishes that research, and gets a paper out of it. The number of times that other people read that research, recognize its importance, and use it to inform their own studies, or use it to kind of reaffirm what these studies are to try to see if they could replicate the results of the experiments, that increases the CD index of the original report. And what people are finding is that the CD index of just about every academic domain today, doesn't matter what the field is, the CD index is on a rapid descent, meaning each subsequent report is citing previous reports less and less because those previous reports are generating less and less disruptive new information and I think it's going to have serious implications for like the future of science or like how we understand the present state of the art uh, across a variety of different fields. Yeah. So I think another way to use this index, another term for it is called the impact factor. And like how many times a paper has been cited. If you look up, you know, medical journals or whatever science, you know, it's the impact factor of 244, 244 times it's been cited. So there are in medicine, in medicine, I know there are landmark papers and that's a specific term. It's not just like, Oh, this is neat. It's like this. I mean, the, the field was one day, then this paper was published and now it is another day um, or it's another way. So, the impact factor, I think, is it, that going down is fascinating to me. The implications, I don't know. I'm kind of shrugging my shoulders because I can't decide. Although I enjoy the idea of progress, I also want to discuss why progress and, and disruption has perhaps slowed. And in my background, which is medicine and like medical data and whatnot, like essentially the reason is because you can't torture human beings anymore and you used to be able to do that. And that really slung shot slingshotted slingshot slingshotted I think shit slingshot i don't know if slung yeah no it's slingshotted slingshotted it has to be right because slung does not sound like a word in and of itself the verb there yeah the verb is to slingshot, slingshot. it's not to I, slung yeah so yeah torturing slaves slingshotted obigyne into what it is now the father of obstetrics and gynecology performed a bunch of shit on slaves were they consenting my guess no. is no they're Did slaves they, you can't no yes no <laughs> right so, but there's things like it, it, one of the most important scientific moments in world history because it changed our ability to protect newborn babies and like the survivability of the mother. And that's how a, a population of species propagates. However, it was on the backs of, of slaves. And as a result of that, we're like, well, now we can't do stuff like that, which no one is arguing that we should be able to ever. Not yeah, we, at all. Yeah, we would never, we would never no. advocate for deliberately choosing to forego even mm-hmm. the most basic ethical. And so, like, that's 
you're pointing out like progress in one area, which is to say basic progress in like human morality and, and the application of ethics to like real world applications that has generated kind of a standstill uh, in some of the, in some of the things. And like, it's not a trade off that any reasonable person would ever make. And we would never right. advocate for that. Yeah, never. Uh, let me, let me give you another example. It's, yep. it's not just in medicine, you know, like, like the horrific experiments of the Nazi sciences, right. scientists have shown us like the limitations of the human body. Uh, another grotesque world war two era fact that still informs a lot of our approach today to an area of health uh, called health physics is the effects of nuclear weapons on survivors of uh, the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah, no question. It's, it's shocking. I mean, so health, health physics is its own distinct field and it has to do with how much, how radiation interacts with the human body. I mean, the different types of radiation, like the gamma rays and their specific energies and the, the beta rays and the alpha particles and the neutrons, they interact with the human body in generally damaging ways. But it's, really complex because there are so many chemical equations and so many chemical processes that could happen when radiation affects the cells in the body. There are so many different types of radiation and their interactions right. with different materials are, are not super well understood uh, outside of the, or inside the human body. Uh, the, but you can't just irradiate people for the purpose of science. I mean, that's right. unethical, even if a person gives consent. So we have to rely on existing data that we have. And most of it comes from like industrial or like lab based accidents or in much larger part, uh, the degree to which people suffered acute radiation or contamination in the aftermath of the bombings in, in Japan, which is attacks in 1945. Yeah, it's, it's shocking. It's, yeah. So like uh, responding to a challenge, I think, is where innovation can happen. Obviously, we just got out of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, essentially, I mean, there are still epidemics here and there throughout the world. Yeah, but the pandemic is effectively over as a result of vaccination strategy. And the, the vaccine was not a groundbreaking idea. The, the vaccine vehicle itself had already existed, but they were able to isolate the protein that it needed to attach to. I believe it was 69 days they got it done in London and they bested America by like 48 hours, which is fucking bananas. Amazing. That's um, like, I remember, it's like, really think about the pandemic when you were shut down at home and like, what were you doing for 70 days? Like, what were you, like, what was I, you grew, you grew quite a, quite a beard. I recall that. Oh yeah. Yeah. And that was, that was absolutely trying to get in the spirit of the times. It wasn't like, oh yeah, I'm going to mark how long this pandemic lasts. It's just like, <laughs> I don't see a reason to shave anymore. Yeah. You, you, your beard was yeah. a fuck it beard for sure. <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was, it absolutely, it was just like my mentality was at the time. And, right. and, you know, we were, we were among like arguably the most fortunate of any people who could have experienced the pandemic. We don't have children. Sure. So we don't have like the major kind of responsibilities of trying to parent or negotiate school systems. We had, were fortunate enough to have jobs where we were able to continue to work remote. We didn't lose our jobs. Yep. And so we had all the privileges and advantages of everybody. And we're, we're highly grateful for that. Sure. Uh, but we were doing nothing close no. to as productive as, Isolating as, proteins. as the, the vaccine yeah. researchers who get paid like a crazy amount of money to do like really profitable research for large pharmaceutical corporations. Like that's the reason we're out of the pandemic today is because of people like that. Correct. And they did it because of like in a weird way, it's, I, I think it's for glory because it was the right thing. People, I mean, I live, my, my spouse is a, a frontline healthcare worker and I distinctly remember the anguish and kind of anger on her face that she couldn't go to the front line, that she was too senior in her surgical training that they needed her to operate. And she was like, I want to go where the people need me. It's like, but, but you know, people need surgery. So you feel good about that. And she's like, oh, I want to go. The, I, they're like, it was, just, it was like being signing up for, for World War II, getting to Italy after the battle was fought. I was like, well, now I'm just in the Mediterranean, just watching the, the, the waves crash on them along the beach. We're fighting a war. Like, 
I was hoping to get a gun, I guess. But um, so like, yeah, no, no question. When you respond to a crisis, that moves the needle forward, right? Evolution versus revolution. Evolution is strange in science because this has been conversations I've had with her and other people. Science and the scientific method and the idea that there's progress on purpose is largely bullshit. What I've noticed is that most cool things were discovered by accident, which means that people just need to be looking for stuff. They just need to be out there looking for shit for fun. Yeah. You ever ever watch, uh, how much Mythbusters did you end up watching? I was like two or three seasons. I was pretty into it like around 16, I think, when I was 16. Yeah, it was that, that. That was a pretty good time to to get into that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, uh, Jamie, uh, what's his name? Jamie something. I don't know. You know who yeah. I'm talking about. The one with uh, the better not the walrus guy. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jamie's <laughs> Jamie had this line that kind of stuck with me. He's like, "Well, you know, the difference between science and screwing around is writing stuff down." Yep. Like if you're doing science, like wow. if you write something down, just like take observations and see what happens. Like that's doing science in a way. Yeah. It, it, the, the stuff they were doing on MythBusters was obviously mo- more for entertainment, and they had a huge budget to just like actually screw around instead of doing you know really rigorous scientific research that's like peer reviewed. But the point is essentially the same. Like people just kind of find things out. Like the match was it was on the basis of somebody leaving a stir stick inside the mm-hmm. inside a container where they were trying to make a universal solvent and it stuck, and so he tried to scrape it off and it burst into flames. Right. You know, the the discovery of, of TNT by Alfred Nobel. Mm-hmm. Like. They, like it, it, there are a lot of like serendipitous uh, scientific discoveries. I, I would argue, Nick, that uh, what, what we're getting at here is the larger issue of once you have made a major scientific discovery, once yeah. you've made a major breakthrough, you can't just make that breakthrough again. We, yeah. we talk a lot about uh, on the show about some disruption and like, you know, I'm, I'm, I generally have disdain for this like Silicon Valley-esque approach to progress studies. Like, oh, the, the progress of the human species is understudied because blah, 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 blah. Like, no, that's just history, man. So, yeah. but like, you also can't just disrupt for the sake of disrupting. And so like, if you look back at the history of how we got to the nuclear level of nuclear science that we're able to like use it to create clean energy and safely irradiate food and provide nuclear medicine to people or weaponize it for weapons of mass destruction that the story of that pretty much tells you kind of everything you need to know in one in one field about how scientific discoveries pretty much occur and like how foundational discoveries enable you to stand on the shoulders of giants and and continue to look forward and why it's so difficult to be a giant yourself when you're already doing work on the basis of somebody else's discoveries. Yeah. So, I mean, as few as 150 years ago, we didn't know what an atom really was. I mean, right. there were theories about what they were. They had been theorized since the time of the Greeks and probably even before that you can get matter down into a small indivisible component. And that component has some fundamental nature beyond which you can't divide it any further. Well, it took ex- all kinds of experiments to figure out what that structure actually looks like. I mean, for a long time, people thought, okay, these are discrete units of just charge that are comprised of some kind of physical material. And they're like generally evenly distributed, like the plum pudding model, for example, like JJ Thompson, like he thought it was a bunch Mm -hmm. of positive charge with little nuggets of negative charge embedded in between. And then along comes Ernest Rutherford, who fires a bunch of alpha particles at a thin sheet of gold foil. And to his surprise, his shock, serendipitously, he finds that they're coming back at the alpha particle generator. And so then he discovered the extremely tiny but extremely dense nucleus that's capable of holding that charge. And so they go from this plum pudding model to this like 
nuclear model of what an atom looks like. And they find out, oh, it's just a bunch of empty space. And if you fast forward through the years, people discover atomic orbitals. People discover what a neutron is. They had to realize that that was a, a component of this, this tiny particle. It's not just like these raw charges. There has to be something else there. And all the steps that people had to take to, to make these basic, basic discoveries that are taught to like middle school students now and taken for granted as just like the truth about how the universe works. You can't just like lay that groundwork again. It's not like you can design an experiment to like re-examine what an atom looks like because you don't need to. That's not a disruption that needs to be made anymore. I mean, in, in the past on the show, I think we've compared it to like building infrastructure for a town. Like, well, if you need to cross yeah. a ravine to get from one side to the other to increase economic connectivity and cultural connectivity or whatever, you build a bridge. But that's great. But once you've built that bridge, you can improve it. Maybe you can expand it, but you can't just build another bridge next to it for the sake of building another bridge and expect the same economic growth or expect the same level of interconnectivity growth to occur again. You've already laid the foundations, so you can't just found another set of foundations, you have to try to innovate elsewhere. And because the big chunks are already taken care of, that that those adjustments, those improvements, they naturally become more incremental. That's the yeah. box that you, uh, you you kind of uh, build yourself into by making these basic discoveries. Yeah, and it's it's so, it, to me, it's sort of like um, moving into a new apartment or buying a house. At the beginning, there's so much space. When you get more shit, and like, well, now moving the bookshelf from there to there is a huge deal in our house. When we, we moved in, it was like, you know, I don't know. The walls were a big deal. It's like, well, it gets more minute, more minute as time time goes by. The problem is that, and where I kind of take issue with the the Atlantic article, because I don't think they've covered this enough, in my opinion, is that we don't know that for sure. We know that it feels like things are slowing down because of this impact factor. However, Gregor Mendel, and this is a great example of what, like, why we don't know shit. Gregor Mendel kind of discovered what we thought at the time was genes and traits, which now Ancestry.com has been like, hey, maybe not quite what we thought, which is, look at that. See, look, we're doing it. We're, pro we're, we're, we're progressing. We're not progressing. I did that on purpose. <laughs> uh, yeah, extremely clever look at that look at that kind of disruptive <sighs> use of linguistics Wait, oh, it's it's it, i put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable so what's this about ancestry.com refuting so, gregor mendel now so they're not refuting him openly what we're finding out now is that genetics and traits aren't necessarily passed down the way that we thought right like okay so like this is a recessive gene and here's a dominant trait and then the people are the brown hair and like but punnett and, squares you may remember right those? exactly exactly so First of all, when he discovered that thing, it sat on like shelves for, I think, like 100 years or something. No one really knew what to do with it. It got buried. No one found it. Like, there was no internet, which actually is an interesting sidebar because having the internet and having all of it is the same thing as not having access to any of it because we don't know what's what and what's important and there's just noise and shit. Well, I, I mean, th think about it in terms of like how much water a person needs to survive. Like you need drinkable water in order to survive in the desert. So it's about in, in the days where there's like no interconnectivity and it's hard to get information. The metaphor is like, we're wandering through the desert. We have to go from oasis to oasis. Otherwise yep. we're never going to make it. Well, right. now the metaphor is like, I don't know, climate change has happened. The sea levels risen so high that now we're swimming in an ocean of information and right. we have to figure out how to get from handhold to handhold or from place to place where the water right. is calmer because there's like, we're not, we're not starved. We're not, you know, we're not starved for information. We're drowning in information. We have to right. learn how to swim. Right, exactly. So they were starved back then. That paper sat on his shelf for, I think, well after his death. And then they're like, oh, well, we should probably look into this. This seems pretty tight. And you're right to circle back that every history of science book I've ever read, regardless of the field of study, all of the people that make big contributions had two things in common. One is that they were obsessive to the point of not having a life. Yes. And two is that they took perfect notes. 
like no typos essentially like their notes are like we know exactly what they ate for lunch on this day and that's why we were able to replicate their stuff it's like oh look at the records record keeping was super important as to your point regardless this shit sat on a shelf we found it later and now we're finding out with ancestry.com that perhaps like the way that you look, you, you might look like one parent, but you have the DNA of another parent. And that's like not an uncommon situation that, that, that people are experiencing. I think you and I, if we ever submitted our DNA, would find something similar. You very clearly look like more of our mother's traits. And I clearly look like our father. According to just yes. me being around, the DNA says that those two things scientifically will be switched. Yeah, it, 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 and it's really curious. That, like, there's such a, a level of detail. Like, what what we're trying to say is is not that oh, well, we've made all the big discoveries, so right. of course nobody's finding anything interesting. That's not the point. The point is that major major discoveries should be a springboard for more innovation and mm-hmm. more discovery. And as you as you go farther out, like the, the discoveries will become less basic and more specialized. And so what we're observing is that like this is, could also be a network effect. You know, we we talk about network effects on the show all the time, where like your friends are more popular than you for example and that's because of the topology of the networks like second order connections are more numerous than first order connections well something similar could be happening with science where like the average scientist the, the average like undergraduate student who decides to graduate and be pursue like a PhD in a field now. They know more and they have access to more information on average than even the greatest scientists did a generation or two generations or three generations ago. Like it's shocking how much more information and more knowledge they have as part of like the systematization of education and the accessibility to to research uh, in a, like in a systematized industrialized kind of way. However, their pursuits are much narrower. So a person isn't figuring out what an atom is. But they are trying to, like, examine, does this uh, method of interrogation of atomic bonds yield different results than that method of interrogation of atomic bonds for this specific type of compound, like for my uranium compounds in my published research? Like, Mm -hmm. believe it or not, within that field, that study was valuable. And by the way, I didn't come up with it. It was valuable because I worked with the guys who were the lead researchers on the project, and they thought it was interesting. And I got to tag along. But the point is that for people who continue to study in these specialized fields, those connections matter quite a bit. And that really informs their research. But it's just that because the network is so much more multitudinous, there are so many more linkages between different types of fields, and you can go a lot deeper into the web of scientific knowledge, the the, the momentum momentum, I guess, of ideas that happen in one place or another don't reach as far. It's a, yeah. it's a fundamental change in the way you see the world to discover that an atom has a nucleus and it has a positive charge at the center and it has neutrons at, at, at the center of that. It's a fundamental shift in the worldview to discover that germs exist and yeah. potentially cause oh, disease. Yeah. Yep. And that, that changes things not just in medicine, but like in the way that people do their homemaking, in the way that people understand the relationship in like the created order, like philosophically. That changes the way people see the world. A discovery that's really specialized in a highly detailed field where there have all been all kinds of other studies nearby, like the, the, the inertia of individual results from experiments just isn't going to carry as far. Like yeah. What somebody does in an experiment at Oak Ridge National Laboratory trying to like study neutronics is not going to fundamentally change the way people like write television programs <laughs> and express ideas to the broader public. It's not right. going to change public policy for like how to, hand to handle a pandemic. But it might have profound effects within that field. And so it could just be an artifact of the way networks become more entangled and more interconnected as as scientific research becomes more specialized and more discreet. And it doesn't have anything to do, like we're not getting dumber as a species. We're not doing no. less impactful work, I, I guess in a way. 
but we're doing work that has just more implications farther inside its field of study than outside. Yeah, and I think, uh, yeah, obviously a lot to add and, and discuss there. Uh, thank you for your TED Talk. The, I, I think you're right in that, like, the, 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 the nicheness of this is really important. The other thing, and we mentioned in this last episode, that the gap between experts and the general public is just growing. And that makes sense because people, that, that's their life's work. We don't realize if you have a career for 10 years even, you know more about your thing than the average. Like you can't even have an intelligent conversation with the average person without having to take them through a five-minute 101 of what you do before you can talk about like what your day was like. It's incredibly, we're, so, we're all so micro-focused that this is how this happens, right? For example, the, well, the other thing I wanted to mention was that it's, it's weird what is taught in school and what like we know about and like what, we, like what big discoveries were what and also what people don't really care about. There's such a, there's like you said, an ocean of information that there have been discoveries all the time that are that way that will be written about in books for decades and centuries and whatnot. But, you know, the general public doesn't know. There's a bunch of other stuff going on. For example, um, in 2011 or 12 or something, the Human Genome Atlas Project finished. And that was something that started in the 80s, I believe, maybe even earlier. They wanted to map the human genome, which I don't really understand. It's like the abacus counter of our body. It's the code of our body, essentially. What genes comprise, like, what are we made of? So we know that we're made of genes. Like, let's, we're all essentially the same genes. What are they? Well, they finished it in 2011. After that, when researchers, immunologists, um, all kinds of physicians and, phys and, and, and uh, PhDs and things, they got this and like, holy shit, it's a supercomputer of the human body. They're making new discoveries all the time that are mind-blowing. For example, in 2016, I worked in cancer research. Immunotherapy had really it become targeted so they can look at the tumor. They can take this information that they got from the Human Genome Atlas Project. They can make a drug and be like, we're going to go after the one cell right there. We're going to screw that cell up and that cancer is going to die. Now, there are people who are alive that like would be dead. It they cured cancer, not all of it. That's not a thing that will ever happen. But there are cancers that were like, you're dead. And now people are not. And not only that, but the, the people who had the worst prognosis, stage four, this or that, they're living longer. And the surgeries are more effective. Like this happened. Nobody knows um, who Jim Allison and Tasuku Hanjo are. I do, because I was working in that. Those guys are superstars. They cured fucking cancer. Yeah, it's shocking. Yeah, you know, th I, I think this is one place where we have to kind of give credence. So, so like I, I said, well, we've been dismissive of, mm. you know, the disruptor culture or whatever. Right. We're disruptive of like big data analysis or, or dismissive of big data analysis and like AI and stuff like that. We're healthily skeptical. We're skeptical. Yes, healthily skeptical. I will say at this point, this, 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 so if you're into that kind of stuff, you're into big data, this big, you know, that kind of analytic approach to the world, this, listen up because we're about to give you a nice little fluff here. Mm. <laughs> I think the conceit of big data is that you can take a, an agnostic approach to any kind of field with enough information, with enough studies like the Human Genome Project, with enough follow-on studies like the ones that you're talking about that are highly specific and highly influential, but ultimately don't get very far because the network is too interconnected for the inertia to carry the ideas beyond the boundaries of the field. The conceit of big data is that it doesn't matter what the field is or who knows what, if you use big data approach, you can extract the relevant information and apply it in a general sense to other areas that you might not have, like specialists might not have the responsibility of making those connections between their cancer research and like public policy. That's for other people to do. So big data says like, well, we can actually make that connection. And I got to say, one thing that they have going for them is that like, there does seem to be a high degree of applicability of scientific research and, and like 
data as such from one field to the next. Uh, mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll give you an example that relates back to what you were saying. You know, I, I work with a guy, or I used to work with a guy who, uh, who's huge, like, uh, shout outs to Aaron, really smart guy, really big into data science, like big believer in using computation to be able to solve problems without having to have specialized expertise in that sure. field. And one of the things that he said was that through the use of uh, natural language processing, which is like a computer function. Oh, I know uh, all about the, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So if, so if you've heard of natural language processing, it's like, how can we make like an ultra smart like chat bot, like chat yeah. GPT, and try to replicate some of the thought processes to analyze like large bodies of text? Mm -hmm. Well, one of the applications that Aaron had in Aaron and his crew had in mind was scientific research that's highly specialized and highly impactful, but ultimately it's, it's tough to translate into like meaningful public policy or change. He said, well, the, the thinking is like, all right, I bet out there we have solved cancer. We have, we have done the work, like you said, with these superstars. We've done the basic mm -hmm. research years ago, and now we're doing so much specialized research. Like We've solved the problem of cancer basically for anybody who, you know, who, who has cancer. But we haven't made enough connections among the different specialized sub-sub-subfields of cancer to be able to quickly draw valuable connections in a way that affects patient care and well-being. So with big data, what you can do is you can analyze all these different papers in a way that a human could never like. You can't read all these papers, like the volume of work that comes out. You could never consume all of that, much less make the connections among the ideas. But with a computer that just has nothing but brain power, and if you have a dedicated enough research team that writes a clever enough algorithm, you could theoretically use natural language processing to extract those ideas, place them in a repository, and give doctors and specialists access to them because they don't have time to, to sit down and just like survey the entire corpus of cancer research because they're busy doing the job of being a doctor. Right, so big yeah. data could apply, you, know, you could potentially take advantage of the highly interconnected network in a way that's just too cumbersome and too difficult for a human person to manage. And so I, I think, you know, the, the connection to, to game theory here is like, how do you make best use of a highly interconnected, really sinuous body of scientific research that gets more and more fine and more and more specialized as you go down? Right. And you, you like extract information and, and extract value out of that in a way that kind of restores the value of disruption and like helps people see again, like, Oh, okay, this is why we fund this highly specific research that I don't understand. Like, yeah. this is why people are doing work on, on a subfield where like, I can't even pronounce the words and translate that into some, some kind of like public meaning or, or, or general value. So people can like see and, and restore trust in basic scientific research. Yeah. And I think, so ChatGPT, the natural language processing is going to be really valuable in medicine. For, and I think that the immediate application is real simple. Um, and that's for people with rare diseases that people are having a difficult time diagnosing. And for those of you that have ever watched House, ChatGPT is going to put House out of work because they don't have to think about things. The ChatGPT are like, here are 200 things. It's probably one of these because all of the information that you have is there. And, and physicians become so highly specialized that either they don't look outside the box or worse, family, family physicians, the people that you see in your clinic are so overworked. They're like, I don't know. Like you go to this specialist and that specialist, all of a sudden it's been two years and you've had this thing. Well, ChatGPT will be like, it's probably one of these. Go get these yeah, checked see, out. Like, oh. 
It seems to me like like to draw an analogy to like schoolwork. It, you know, mm-hmm. if you used to do like math problems. They'd have the answers to just the odd number problems in the back right. of the book. So the teacher yeah, yeah. assigns only the even number problems or whatever. So I, I don't think the natural language processing result is meant to be the answer guide at the back of the book. No. What I do think is that it's when people walk into a library, there are hundreds of thousands of volumes. Chat GPT is supposed to be the automated system that says, "Hey, I know exactly which book or set of books you're looking for. Right. You're going to want to start your search here." Right. Exactly. So it's it's not going to solve the problems, but it can be a helpful like a valuable tool for people to kind of condense the nonsense, cut through the weeds, make sure they find their way into the right sub, sub, sub field in this like highly interconnected network of scientific ideas and get to better, more accurate, more valuable answers more quickly. So I I do got to give it up to the people who are like, you know, very pro AI, pro data analysis and that kind of stuff. So yeah, no, you know, there's, it's, it's, it's not a nothing field. It's highly valuable if you know the right way to use it. And I, I think, you know, because of the, the, I think there's a correlation between the potential of natural language processing and chat GPT and AI and stuff like that. And the diminishing degree to which scientific research is disruptive today. Yeah. Listen, uh, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I, I think it's like what we've talked about before where it's more network effects. And the fact that we've already laid the foundations than right. it is like, People aren't doing worse research. It's now. also money. It's also money. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. That's that's, that's the other big factor that we haven't really discussed. Yeah. So what you're what you're talking about? I mean, I I completely agree with you, and I think that I mean I've had this take since high school. Like every every tool in the world is dynamite. Every single thing that is not human is as good as it is bad. Always, it is a permanent state. Like I have, I mean, you look at something stupid around my desk, like a pen. That's a pen or a murder weapon, or I could throw it at my cat. Like it is a spectrum of existence. It is as that's a very, good uh, as it is bad. That's a very uh, Wittgenstein, like, uh, or, or that's like, that's like, uh, is it Aristotelian where it's like the, the nature of a thing is defined by its use? Yeah, that sounds like, like it. It could be Lucretius, perhaps. Like a Lucretius. Yeah, actually, that does sound right. It's On like, the nature like a of broom. Things, yeah. A broom is only a broom if you use it to sweep. Right. Like, exactly. Well, like, I mean, dynamite is the, the obvious example because it's yeah, offered Nobel. Yeah. The Nobel Prize is like, yes, murder weapon that's killed ho- probably hundreds of millions at this point. Also, like, it's why we have bridges and tunnels. And so, like, everything is as good as it is bad. And that's the same thing with AI. Like, could this get really dark and we start to, like, minimize humanity a little bit? For sure. Also, you might save people's lives. Who knows? It's yeah. kind of up to how you use it. So... I want to pitch you on something. I've had this idea for about seven years now, ever since I got into medical research. And it goes back to your whatever boring paper that you pitched to us. You know, I'm going to link to that shit. I want people to comment on your research. I'm going to find that motherfucker. And we're going to link to it. Oh, and people no. are going to have thoughts. Okay. Oh, no. Shout out Here's to the Burns pitch. Lab. I want to found and edit a scientific journal. And I'm going to call it either, I'm going to call it the negative journal. And all it is. Game theory journal. Game theory, the game theory journal, the lost game, or the, the Nash Equilibrium journal. The journal would just be a bunch of research that didn't find anything out. There's a bunch <laughs> of highly funded, well, meticulous noted shit. And they're like, our hypothesis was this. Nope. Like, and I, I, I argue that that's important. Like the building blocks is think about you're sorting a puzzle, right? This is life and a science is finding questions out. You got to sort the edge pieces first, right? Sort edges and middle ones. Sometimes you got to get the middle ones out of there. It's like, well, are these things as long as these things is whatever your paper was about. Like, nope, my, my journal will take it. Here's a journal of negative, negative outcomes. It got me a presentation at the 2014 American Chemical Society convention. So, it's important. That, I mean, it is important to find finding nothing out is finding somebody. something out. 
Yes, <laughs> it's like it's like when uh, really this is a little callback, like the Family Guy when uh, when Mort, the pharmacy owner, is like, "Oh yeah, we've been spending our evenings watching old movies and listening to Hotel California and seeing if they sync up in a significant way." Exactly. And so far, no, nothing has. Exactly, that is exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, like nobody wants to publish that stuff because the drug companies won't. You know, if you find if you're looking for a, a, an answer in medical research as a med student, you don't find anything out. Drug companies aren't going to pay for it. It's like, yep. But so it should be published though. Like we should be yeah, able to look agreed. it up so that ChatGPT can find it. Yeah, that that'll be our our next our lifelong dream for you, for for those of you who are uh, followers and subscribers. We encourage you to be on the lookout for Nick's negative journal. Mm-hmm. Subscribe the to that when it comes out on a date. TBD uh, journal TBD. that it's a journal. It's like the Seinfeld of journals. It's a <laughs> journal about nothing. That's exactly that's exactly what it'll be. And there'll be no no anticipation. Here's no. a study. Nothing happened. <laughs> no, you know exactly what you're going to get out of that journal. All right, Chris, what are your thoughts on, let's talk about the Bell Laboratory and the Ig Nobel Prize. So the Ig Nobel Prize, if you didn't know, are for, I don't know the exact definition of it, but it's essentially like, here's some science stuff that people found out that's just fun. It's not like revolutionary necessarily. It's just fun. And then, of course, the Bell Laboratories are just funded by Bell, the telephone company, right? Like, what was his name? Alexander Graham Bell? Yeah, so, so it's it's named after Alexander Graham Bell. Right. Uh, what we're talking about is uh, it, is the topic of a book that I read years ago that has like changed kind of the way I see basic scientific research. Basically, I, I was talking with a friend of mine years ago, and her argument was that we really need uh, big big brother to fund science research because it's not profitable for corporations to do just basic science. Like everything has to be related to their product line, otherwise, you know, because of the evils of capitalism. Horseshit. John Gertner is the author of this book called The Idea Factory, Bell Labs and the Great Age of American Innovation. And the thesis of that book is about Bell Laboratories, which is a privately funded company, or it's, it's, it's the laboratory of a privately funded company. And their whole job was to do just like basic scientific research. It wasn't like, oh, we need to develop this product and we have to have a lab to do it. It was, we're just going to have a bunch of smart people here doing basic scientific research. And these guys, I mean, Bell Labs is like legendary. It's like, you know, you, you get like the Lawrence Livermore Labs of the world now and the Los Alamoses and and the, you know, whatever university, like if your research coming out of like X, XYZ lab at Harvard, like, you know, it's going to be good. Bell right, Labs right. was, was good. I mean, these guys discovered so many interesting and useful like phenomena in science and, and basic like electronics engineering that were just not on the table before and it wasn't directly connected to anything. So like, for example, uh, the, the field of like statistical process control, it's like, a, you know, how engineers control processes in like, I don't know, a, a plant that produces chemicals or like a, any kind of factory that's manufacturing stuff. Process control was discovered and, and developed by Bell Labs researchers in 1924. Uh, a, Bell, a Bell Labs team also uh, successfully transmitted a bunch of television images in 1927, so long-distance radio wave transmission of, uh, of information. Uh, they, they revolutionized that. Uh, in 1931, a foundation for radio astronomy was laid by uh, researcher Carl Jansky. Uh, he was investigating shortwave communications, and he discovered that radio waves were being emitted from the center of the galaxy. He discovered huh. the phenomenon of cosmic microwave background radiation that is the physical evidence that, like, put the nail in the coffin for, like, oh, yeah, the Big Bang happened and the universe is still expanding because we see this background radiation. They did that on the basis of basic scientific research at Bell Labs, and it was funded entirely by a private company. Shocking uh, the degree to which this place spurred really, truly disruptive scientific discovery. Uh, and I encourage everybody to read the book by John Gertner, The Idea Factory. 
I love that very much. And I want to talk about the uh, Ig Nobel Prize because it's, it's kind of similar in that everything, w- what it does is it validates every scientific question. We're not just trying to invent the computer or cure cancer. We're like, let's just find some shit out. And then the next people that want to cure cancer can use this shit and do something with it. So Ig Nobel Prize is like that. The Ig Nobel Prize was founded by this, this organization. Um, I believe it was called like the Journal of Irre- No, it's the Annals of Improbable Research is that's the name of the journal. That guy founded the Ig Nobel Prize. They call like them that. the Ignitaries. Get it? The Ignitaries, ah, yes. The Ignitaries. And what it does is just awards like just random ass irre- irre- irreproducible research. But they're finding out that not all of it is just irrelevant hogwash. For example, I, I saw this on TikTok a while back. One of the studies that won investigated whether or not a cat is liquid by definition. <laughs> Cats fill up 100% of their physical space. <laughs> and what oh, we found man. out is that cats' spines work differently. Yes, that oh. led to other stuff. Here's, here's another fun one, Chris. I think at some point, I would say it's like in 2006. Yes, in 2006, this, the winning study found that mosquitoes preferred the smell of cheese to humans. As a result of that... We now laid mosquito traps with cheese, and it's like prevents <laughs> malaria in Africa, bro. What were they right. like? They were laying mosquito traps with people before. I I probably had no traps. Yeah, They're like, well, humans. They just want humans. That's not true. They don't necessarily want humans. Let's go through some of the the studies this year. Are you ready for this? I'm this sorry, is. I mean, yeah, this I'm, is really funny and cool stuff. Okay, in applied cardiology, the winners. Who there are too many of them to list. Uh, R.I.P. My bad. Uh, they won for seeking and finding evidence that when new romantic partners meet for the first time and feel attraction to each other, their heart rates synchronize. Incredible. That's amazing. Incredible. Doesn't that raise more questions than it answers? I love that stuff. How about this one? The, The engineering one, trying to discover the most efficient way for people to use their fingers when turning a doorknob. (laughs) I'm a, I'm a big three finger guy. Three fingers. In In 1991, the Ig Nobel Prize for Peace was awarded to researchers who found that politicians gain more ground in the polls by punching each other than they do by going to war. Wow. So instead of going to war with another country, nobody likes that. If you fight your opponent, (laughs) it's better for you. That kind of research, I mean, who knows? It's exactly what we were talking about. and Nobody knows what to do with this, but somebody down the road will know what to do with this, and they'll build off of it, which is an important part of this. It's it's not that disruption isn't happening. Disruption is happening all the time. It's that Mark Zuckerberg and Peter Thiel are like, nobody's inventing anything. Shut up. Yeah, they're inventing stuff just fine. It's just a matter of, like, look, not every scientific research project is going to result in a fundamental shift in the history of how humans see the world. Like, look... Physicists Frank Fish, Ji Ming Yuan, Ming Lu Chen, Lai Bing Jia, Chen Yuan Ji, and Attila uh, Inchichik uh, uh, hmm. tried to understand how ducklings managed to swim in formation this year. That's not going to change the history of human ideas, but no. it is important. It does matter. Anybody does. who's seen a picture of cute little ducklings on the internet knows it matters. And that's well, what we're and, all about here. And, and to, to further prove the point, Chris, and this is, in, you know, the Ig Nobel thing. Are you familiar with uh, a Chinese physics project, the lunar gravity, lunar gravity research? No. They won a Nobel prize for this in 2010. And it's, it's, they have a facility that looks at gravity and it's specifically lunar gravity. This facility came out of an Ig Nobel prize in 2000 when they were trying to figure out 
magnetic levitation of frogs. Incredible. And now China has a multi-hundred million dollar facility looking at lunar gravity. So people looking to write the next great sci-fi novel? There you go. Further than China. Honestly, hey, you could just start and end there. When you're writing a yeah. sci-fi novel, just start, just start and end there. Oh, man. Oh, I... <laughs> Uh, God, that's so funny. I think um, I had something I wanted to end with. What did I want to end with? Get you out of here on this. Don't don't mock me right now. That's uh, for those of you who listen to Nick's sister podcast. Interesting to see classic line. Chris, I do, I remember now what I wanted to get out of here with. I did. Do yeah. you want to add with a little bit of humor? Get us out of here. Disruption. One of the most successful Shark Tank pitches of all time was for a device that would improve a process that all of us undertake hopefully once a day medically, uh, oftentimes, you know, five to ten times a week. It's called the Squatty Potty. Mm -hmm. And all it does is give you a place to put your feet up when you poop, which is the natural way to poop. That is a million-dollar company. That's disruption. That's that's, And your house is incredibly disruptive. Remarkably disruptive. (laughs) Uh, today's episode is sponsored by Squatty Buddy. Uh, it, it could be. It could, just email me, DM me, whatever you want. Totally fine. Three, big. Three, well, not, not too big, though. Don't want to. <laughs> <laughs>